If you're joining us for the first time, we're continuing our studies in 1 Samuel. In chapter 8, we read that Israel demanded a king to lead them like all the other nations. And in chapter 9, we see who that king is. He's a man by the name of Saul, a striking person in terms of his physical appearance. He has what the people would want in a king. But he's also the king that God has chosen to deliver his people because, as we read, he has heard their cry for deliverance. And what we saw in chapter nine is the mercy of God and not giving his people what they deserve and asking for a king. So in chapter 10, we are going to see God's king confirmed. And then secondly, we're going to see God's king revealed. And what I hope we take away from our text today is that even though God will give us things, nothing can be a substitute for his rightful place and his rule and his reign in our lives. So let's look at my first point. God's king confirmed. So Saul in chapter nine. We read that he woke up that morning and searched for his father's donkeys. And what he found that evening was a kingdom. We saw that God had providentially ordered his steps to Samuel to be anointed as Israel's first king. So after a good night's sleep in verse 26 of chapter nine, Samuel tells Saul to send his servant ahead of them because he has a message from God to give him in verse 27. He then takes some olive oil and pours it over his head. And then he says these words to Saul. Has not the Lord anointed you the ruler of his inheritance? Now, the reader might guess the significance of this ceremony. But again, we have to put ourselves in Saul's shoes and wonder what he must be feeling. Right now, he's probably saying to himself, as as Samuel was pouring the oil over his head, what in the world is going on? And why is this guy pouring salad oil over my head? Now, the anointing was important because the anointing was to firm was to confirm God's commissioning of Saul to serve him in a leadership capacity. It was also a confirmation to the last line in Hannah's prayer in chapter two, where it says that he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. The first king of Israel will be anointed by God and will be given strength to carry out his tasks. But notice Samuel doesn't use the word king here. Instead, he says, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance. This is Samuel telling Saul that, look, you might be king, but Israel still belongs to the God and that he was not going to be a king instead of God, but he would be a king under God. And in this way, Israel will continue to be the Lord's people. And therefore, their king will not be like all the other kings of the surrounding nations. So just in case Saul has any doubt in his mind that what's going on is real or that maybe Samuel is making all of this up or that Samuel has the wrong guy. 
Samuel says that when you leave me today, you will be giving three more signs that will confirm God's choice of you as king. And we read that the first sign in verse two, he will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah that will confirm that his father's donkeys have been found. And then secondly, he will meet three men on their way to worship, carrying three young goats, three loaves of bread, and will inquire about his welfare. And two of the men will be generous and give him bread, but the other will keep one for himself. And then the last and final sign, which seems to be the most significant, verse 5, we read that when approaching Gibeah, he will encounter a group of prophets near a Philistine outpost, and they will be coming down from the high place singing and worshiping God. And at that time, verse six, we read that the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you and you will be changed into a different person. Meaning at that moment, he will be empowered by the spirit of God to do the task that God has called him to do. God is equipping Saul to lead. He's giving him everything that he needs to serve him effectively. No matter how big and tall Saul is, what this shows is that he cannot defeat the enemies of Israel in his own strength. He needs the strength of the Lord. Now, notice that these signs are quite specific. Now, this wasn't your general fortune cookie prognostic. This was supernatural insight that God was giving Samuel to give to Saul. And the purpose for such specification was, again, to confirm that Saul does have indeed the blessing from God to lead his people. But verse nine is interesting because it reads that even before all of these signs were confirmed, that God changes his heart. And I thought the change would come later. So you see, I believe that what Saul experienced at this moment was a heart that was ready to accept the implications of the signs he would encounter. You see, God had to change his heart in order for him to walk in obedience to his word, meaning God gives him a heart that is willing to obey and accept all that was to follow. You see, Saul could have just said, I don't believe any of this. And he could have just walked away. But instead, God has to give him a new heart to again receive and accept the word from Samuel. Now, in verses 10 to 11, the narrator doesn't seem interested in giving us much detail on how the first two signs were fulfilled. We only get this summary that they were. But it's the third sign that he draws our attention to. It's the empowering of the Holy Spirit in Saul prophesying. Now, he draws our attention to this because most likely he wants us to see the reaction of the people to Saul. Verse 11, when all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesy with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this? What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Could you imagine how people must have felt seeing this shy country boy caught up in the singing and worshiping and dancing of the prophets? 
You see, Saul was probably the least likely person to have caught religion. But here he is on the worship team, declaring the praises of God. This was so that the people could see that God's hand was on Saul's life. And what we see is God's spirit bearing witness that this is Israel's new king. Saul is a changed man and the people who once knew him could attest to this. I mean, listen to what they are saying in verse 11. What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul now among the prophets? In other words, they can't explain what has happened to Saul. But it's all about to become clear. And that leads me to my final point. God's revealed king. Now, verses 14 to 16, after this incredible experience of donkeys and breads and prophets, Saul finally reaches home. And one would think that after such a life changing experience, Saul would rush home to tell his family that he's giving his final notice on the farm. that He just got a new job as the king of Israel. Instead, we see a less than enthusiastic Saul. We see someone who seems incredibly coy about all that has just transpired. Saul's conversation with his uncle in verses 14 to 16 leaves you scratching your head and wondering, well, what's going on with God's chosen man? Look with me at verses 14 to 16. It says that Saul is asked by his uncle, where have you been? And Saul's reply seems evasive. He says, we went looking for donkeys. And when we didn't find it, we went to Samuel to ask where they could be. Now, his uncle is probably suspecting something is up because remember, there are rumors floating around that Kish's son is among the prophets. So he inquires a little bit further in verse 15. He says, well, what did Samuel say? And listen to how Saul responds. He says, he assured us that the donkeys were okay. And that's it. Wait, Saul, you're looking at this and you're reading this and you're saying, what is going on? Saul, aren't you going to tell them about the anointing? Aren't you going to tell them about the miraculous signs and the Holy Spirit coming upon you? Aren't you going to tell them about your procession being caught up in the procession of the the prophets? You're not going to tell them that you are now God's chosen king. You're left to ask, is this humility? Is Saul just being humble or is Saul being afraid? Now, some commentators tend to think that Saul didn't say anything because he was overwhelmed. He just had a long few days and he didn't want to make a big fuss of it. And look, that may be true, but there are a few head scratching things about Saul that you may have noticed so far in this story that are interesting. One, Saul, remember, remember that Saul was given Three signs and two directives. Did you notice that in verses seven to nine? The first directive was when Saul was told uh, that after all of the three signs were fulfilled, 
then he was to do what his hands saw fit to do. For God was with him. And then the second directive was in verse eight, when Samuel tells him that after you have done what your hands saw fit to do, then go down ahead of me in Gilgal and wait for me seven days until I come with further instructions. So what we have here are three signs that were fulfilled, but there is no mention of Saul following the two directions. The first direction in verse seven could sound vague. Do what your hands seem fit to do. That's until you read Judges 9.33. And this same idiom is used where it is clear from the context that it refers to military action against Israel's enemies. God is telling Abimelech in Judges to attack Gaul. Now, remember that God tells Samuel in chapter nine that Saul will save his people from the Philistines. And notice in chapter 10, verse five, that this whole prophecy scene happens at a Philistine outpost. So was Saul to receive the spirit, be changed into another man and then go to war? Well, some may say, well, he didn't have an army or the valiant men of verse 26. They weren't there. Well, he didn't need an army to do so. Remember when the spirit of God came upon Samson in Judges 15. Look at what he did. He took out a thousand men by himself with just the donkey's jawbone. And even just a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 14, when a young Jonathan and his armor bearer defeats the whole Philistine outpost. You're left to wonder, was this the directive Samuel was given? And was he following this directive? Or was he afraid? And then notice the final directive. After defeating the Philistines, Saul was to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel for further instructions. But notice what he does in verse 13. After he stopped prophesying, he goes to the high place, which some scholars believe is his home. And verse 15 seems to confirm that, which again means that Saul didn't do what Samuel told him to do. So now the reader is left to wonder, well, what are we to think of this man, Saul? And as one commentator puts it, I mean, Saul is beginning to look like a mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, he's tall and handsome with all the traits that might seem kingly. But on the other hand, he is clearly God's anointed. He is the one who would save his people from their enemies. And the one that God will use for his merciful purposes. Yet here we see Saul. It's a changed man as well. And he has a new heart. But on the other hand, we're starting to see a Saul who is fearful and is insubordinate and having difficulties in obeying the word of the Lord through the prophet Samuel. So what shall we make of this man, Saul? You know, after some unspecified time, we now find ourselves in verse 17, where Samuel summons the nation of Israel to Mizpah to reveal to them their new king. 
And remember, Mizpah is the place where Samuel had gathered the people of Israel in chapter 7 to address the nation's apostasy. It seems as if Samuel's summons once again could suggest that the problem of apostasy has not really been dealt with. It hasn't gone away. So before revealing their king in verses 19 to 20, Samuel decides to rehearse their history by reminding them of what the Lord has done for them and how it was Yahweh who delivered them from their powerful oppressors. He was the one who saved them out of all of their disasters and calamities. And the second half of his speech was an indictment upon Israel. Verse 19, but you have rejected the Lord your God and wanting to have a king like all the other nations. Can you imagine what that assembly must have felt like? The silence and the weight of the conviction that was there. Now, can you also imagine Saul being there and hearing this and then saying to himself, man, who am I to compete with Yahweh? So Samuel then calls all the tribes of Israel to come forward and they begin to cast lots. And again, this is to show that 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 God was still sovereign and in control. Even in the casting of lots. And so the tribe of Benjamin was taken and eventually the lot fell to the son of Kish, which is Saul. But where is Saul? We find Saul hiding amongst the supplies in verse 22. Uh, This isn't what you do when you're humble, right? This is what people do when they are afraid. They hide. You know, and often we hide because we are afraid of failure or, or we hide because we are afraid of what others will think of us. We're afraid of making decisions, knowing how unforgiving people could be if you get things wrong. And so we run from leadership. Being afraid is a natural response when it comes to leadership. And look, I can sympathize with Saul here. But a leader has to be aware of his fears and not allow them to dominate his or her leadership. What we have seen in the church is how often unchecked fears could lead to an abuse of power. It could paralyze a ministry in a church's mission. It could lead to self-preservation where the leader only thinks of himself and not others. But God has given Saul confirmation after confirmation that he was with him so he wouldn't be afraid. But we see Saul acting in fear, not just once in this chapter, but twice. And unfortunately, fear will become the driving motivation behind Saul's decisions in subsequent chapters again and again and again. So in verse 24, we see God's chosen king revealed. A head taller than everyone else, just the kind of physically impressive king they wanted. The people are pleased. So they shout, long live the king. The people have the king. 
they've asked for. Samuel then proclaimed to the people the rights of the kingship, and he wrote them on a scroll before sending everyone home. So everyone went home rejoicing, right? Well, not everyone. Look at verse 26. It reads, but some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? Not all Israel supported Saul. And this point should be noted. It shouldn't be lost here. That the king causes division. The king suffers rejection even in Israel. And the question going forward in this book is, can this king save us? You see, chapter 10 is about Israel established or about Israel. Establishing Israel's first king. But it is still very much about God. See, God is still in control. And we see he's the one who chooses Saul. He anointed him and has given him both his word and his spirit to lead his people. God does all this despite the fact that Israel rejected him. But the question they are forced to ask themselves is, can this king save us? Is he a good substitute for Yahweh? You know, one Old Testament scholar says in chapter 10, we see the contrast between King Saul and the one true king, Jesus Christ. You see, Saul was outwardly impressive and he was clothed with power on the outside. Whereas Jesus was not much to behold physically and his power was clothed in true humility and in righteousness. Saul was empowered by the Holy Spirit for a task and didn't complete it. Whereas Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit and did all his father's will perfectly. Saul was shy and fearful about his anointing. But we, re- but we read that Jesus, the anointed Messiah, came preaching the kingdom of God with power and with authority. At best, Saul could temporarily save Israel from their enemies, but he could do nothing with Israel's recurring sin and apostasy. He could do nothing for his own sin and rebellion. But Jesus was the sinless king who came to deal with our sin and to offer his life as a ransom. He canceled our sins and he paid our debts on the cross in order that we might know the mercy of God. We might come to know the forgiveness of God and the peace that comes from being reconciled with our father. The people shouted, long live the king. But the reality is that Saul died and he died tragically. Jesus also died tragically. But he was raised to life on the third day and now lives forever and rules with all power and authority over a kingdom that has no end. Long live this king. You see, this story is to get us to reflect on the substitutes we often have in place of God. God gives us leaders, but no matter how good our leaders are, They can never replace God. They cannot save us like Christ can save us. God gives us relationships, but do we use them as a substitute 
for our relationship with him. God gives us good jobs and he gives us houses and education. But it is a substitute for our need to depend on him. Can these counterfeit gods really save us? And the answer is no. Only the one true king, Jesus Christ, whom God has anointed, confirmed and revealed through his holy word and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Only he has the power to save his people. So my challenge to you today is to let go of your substitutes and then let Christ reign in your heart. Amen.